Good morning. What is it you would say that you hope in? Hope is one of those words that almost doesn't even make sense in today's world. Hope is about waiting. Hope is about the future. And we don't wait for anything, do we? We just, my family just moved uh, my grandma out of the, the home she had been in for many years. And the freezer, the upright freezer in her garage, was 60 years old and still running. Does anybody, has anyone bought a, a refrigerator or a freezer recently? Because they will tell you 10 years is good. You'll be lucky if it lasts 10 years now. Because things are made with intended obsolescence, right? They are supposed to not last. And most of the things we buy, and probably it's good business practice, and it's because technology is changing so much, but I mean, if you have a phone that's over four years old, it's like starting not even to be functional. Can't even work with the new software updates. What do you think that idea does to our soul? That everything is so short term that we just had the NFL draft. The average NFL career is about three and a half years. The average job, average employment is only about four or five years in the same place. That our world is so full of change, as they say, change is the only constant. Right? It's almost as if we are in a place where it's intentionally hopeless. It's intentionally meant for you not to think about the future, not to be sure about the future so that we can be more restless in the now and feel like we have to buy the new product, the new app, whatever it may be, just to get by. And so we are like people without an anchor, people without hope, and as Pascal said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. He said that 400 years ago. <laughs> I don't know what he would say now. So in the midst of this world that seems like we're always just drifting and after new fads, drifting in the waves, what would it mean to really hear this passage of God's unchanging, absolute steadfastness that he wants to guarantee his promise to us? Let's pray and then try to figure out what that would mean. God, you are a God who so graciously has condescended to us in Christ. We have heard of your promises of forgiveness and your promises that we get in the church, that you have not left us as orphans, that you have provided in so many ways that we get to have a family here now on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, God, we waver, we despair, we are hopeless, we have doubts and burdens. Lord, speak to us now by your word. May your spirit be mighty. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the book of Hebrews, Really, the, the main thesis is the supremacy of Christ. He is better, more faithful than 
all things that we can imagine, and especially in relation to the Old Testament. And so we're going to look in a minute about why he's more superior to Abraham. But first, asking what does hope do, first hope does imitate and look to Abraham. So we're going to talk some about Abraham. I want to I look at why hope imitates Abraham, then why hope holds fast to the Word of God, and then why hope actually enters the veil into God's very presence. But first, hope in relation to Abraham. Abraham is often called the man of faith. Uh, you could easily also call him the man of hope. Hope is simply faith projected to the future, right? And so right at the beginning in Genesis 12, when Abram is first called, imagine the hope it would take to just hear this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So Abram went. I love the simplicity of that. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Then in Genesis 15, which is the passage we heard read, we hear again this promise. Abram is like, you promised me descendants and I'm very, very old and I have no true heirs. He's bringing his real doubts and questions to God. And God has him look to the stars, stars in a world before like electricity. You can imagine how many stars he would have seen. Look to the stars. But then did you notice what happened after he looked at the stars to see how many descendants he will have, how God will make a blessing? God himself takes on the burden of fulfilling this covenant. He not only says, I will establish this covenant to you, just as he says uh, in the promise of baptism, I am establishing my covenant to you, but he sets up this oath ceremony, part of the passage maybe that you just glossed over, the animals and the torch and things like that. But it's actually amazing because what's happening is that normally you would have a powerful nation and a less powerful nation, they make an oath, and the less powerful nation would go through something like this ceremony, would walk through the animals that have been split, saying, in effect, if I break my oath, then let me be as these animals. Let me be killed. I swear to keep my side of the oath. But God is the one that walks through the animals. We're told even that Abram has fallen asleep. And God walks through and says, I will establish, I will bear the burden of this covenant to you and your descendants. He says the same thing in Genesis 17 when his name is changed from Abram to Abraham, meaning the father of all nations, not just one nation and, or many nations. And he gives them the promise of circumcision. And again, God says, I will establish a covenant to you. But then you come in this amazing uh, story of Abraham. You come to Genesis 22. And he's finally got the son of the promise. He's finally got Isaac. And you have this incredible narrative. And if you never read it, I would encourage you to go back and read Genesis 22 slowly. The son of the promise now 
Abraham is told to go and sacrifice. To go bring him up to the mountain and sacrifice him to the Lord your God. And very famous story, of course, he goes up, not telling Isaac what's going to come. And later in Hebrews, we're told it's as if Abraham believed that he would receive Isaac back from the dead. And right at the moment, as the knife is raised, God interrupts him, and the angel says, Cut and take the ram uh, that is, is hiding in the bush. I, and God says, I see your faith. I see your faith now. And that's where God swears by himself. That's the passage that Hebrews is quoting there in verse 14. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Or blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. And that's what Hebrews wants to make a big deal out of. Because God doesn't have anyone greater to swear by. Right? You raise your right hand. You put your hand on the Bible in the court. You, you say this oath on behalf of something greater. It's as if God is raising his right hand. And did you notice the purpose? He's raising his right hand to swear by himself in order to show us more convincingly that his purpose is unchangeable. And he does, I mean, commentators are, are, are amazed both back in Genesis and this Hebrews passage. God shouldn't have to swear by himself. I mean, his word alone should be enough. And so Hebrews says, God, for whom it is impossible to lie, he doesn't need an oath, but just to make sure, just to prove, just to legally guarantee, a lot of this language apparently is legal language, in order to guarantee and prove to you beyond a shadow of doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, to put it in our legal language, that his promise is unwavering. He took an oath. Man, isn't that amazing? That God would so graciously condescend to, to speak our language, to show and to prove to us such compassion, such, such awareness of our weakness and our liability to doubt and to waver. And so he wants us to see how hope ought to imitate Abraham because as Paul goes to great lengths, those who are in Christ are heirs with Abraham. We are sons of Abraham. This is not a new religion. We are receiving the promised Holy Spirit through faith because the blessing was always meant to go to many nations. And so first we see that hope looks to and imitates Abraham, but that's almost just the start because he, he goes on to, to explain why hope ought to hold fast or latch on to something. What is it that we are latching on to? What is it that you hope in? And if you think about how hope works, it really has to do with the object that you're latching on to. But like I said, hope is such a weak word in our culture, we almost don't know what it means. We say we hope there's not much traffic today. 
And maybe it's because we've driven that route at the same time and we sort of know that there won't be much traffic, but we don't know, especially in Connecticut. You know, there's going to be an accident probably on 95. There's going to be new construction. We hope in, what else? We hope that because our employer has said if you work 40 hours a week, you will receive this amount of money, we hope that they will go, they will, they will actually do what they say, dependent on their word or their promise. We hope when we buy something, we hope in the brand that we are trusting, that the brand will live up to its reputation. And if you think about it, we also want others to hope in us. We want our loved ones to hope in us. So how do we prove that? We want it, I think, in so many different relationships. I mean, how would I, want, how would I prove to my kids that they can hope in me, that they can trust me? For, for our youngest, he's four, and it's actually pretty easy with a four-year-old because to him, I mean, he likes to have me stand next to other dads. And in his mind, I am the tallest person in the world, the fastest, except for Hussein Bolt, because I talk about Hussein Bolt, the fastest person in the world, and the strongest. And so it's easy for him to hope in me. But for our oldest, uh, our, our two oldest kids, it's getting, I think, harder. They start to see my flaws. They start to see that I'm not always locked into them, that I don't do uh, so many things right. How do I prove to them that it's bigger than how I may be feeling and it's bigger than my mood that they really can hope in me? Don't you want that? Don't you want people to, to hope in you and don't we want ultimately to find someone that will say, I will never let you go? That your hope in me is unbreakable. We have come just after a passage about warning. This incredibly harsh passage about warning. Do not be sluggish. Do not be like those who fall away. Do not be like those who drift. And right after that, he gives us this amazing proof that we have someone that we can hold fast to. Did you notice how he describes Believers, it's a, it's a really quick description, but in 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. Believers are those who have fled for refuge. Hope is something that you hope in someone that you can trust in the midst of a storm. And I was reminded just with that phrase of uh, one of the greatest hymn writers, uh, a woman named Anne Steele. And if you haven't heard of her, I'd encourage you to look up some of her hymns. She, uh, she lived around in the 18th, 18th century uh, in Britain. Her mother died when she was three years old. Uh, by 14, she just had chronic health problems, uh, recurring malaria. In the last nine years of her life, she was bedridden. Uh, she chose, before that, a life of, of singleness. And yet she wrote these amazing, amazing hymns and poetry. Apparently, there's a hymnal in Boston in the 1800s. 
It's an Episcopal hymnal, and Episcopals didn't really get along with Baptists. But out of the 150 hymns in that volume, over 50 were from Anne Steele, this Baptist woman. She wrote things like, He lives, our great Redeemer lives, thou lovely source of true delight. But the hymn that I was reminded of is, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And it goes like this, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, On Thee When Sorrows Rise. On thee, when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone can heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. I would encourage you to go and listen to the rest of that song. She ends by saying, thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat with humble hope. Attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. In, that, in those words, hope is so active. It is so real and honest. And it is crying out. Hope is not, uh, hope is not just this thing that we place in some mysterious, happy-go-lucky grandfather in the sky. Hope is what the author of Hebrews then says is an anchor for the soul. And so we are encouraged to place our gloomy doubts, our sorrows and griefs in the one to whom we take refuge. The mercy seat is open still. And so, in so many words, the author of Hebrews and God wants us to know that Whatever else you may have fleeting hope in, there is an unbreakable, unwavering hope in Christ. It will not be changed because finally, hope gets personified. In 19 and 20, he starts personifying hope because literally, Jesus is our hope. Did you notice what he did there? He's we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, what is he talking about there? This is where he gets now into why it is better. We have something better than Abraham. Abraham had a spoken word, and then God did do that, go through that oath ceremony. He gives him the covenant of circumcision, so he has visible signs to confirm his faith. But we actually have the Word become flesh. We don't just have a spoken word. We have the Word become human amongst us. That all of the promises of God, we are told, find their yes and amen in Christ. That the promises of God to Abraham, that the promises of God about circumcision, the promise of God after the binding of Isaac, finds their yes in Jesus. The way that God responds after Abraham uh, completes that test is he says this, he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then God goes and swears by himself. But do you realize that that 
is fulfilled in Jesus because that is what now we can say to God. God, I know that you are faithful because you have not withheld your only son from me. That's what the story of Abraham and Isaac was supposed to point us to. That how unchangeable is that hope? Do you believe that? Do you say that to God? How can we doubt that sort of God's faithfulness? And so the author of Hebrews says we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Is that your anchor? Do you have an anchor of any sort? A sure and steadfast anchor, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That word forerunner is amazing. And there are several times in the book of Hebrews where he uses nautical analogies about, about ships and boats. And he often talks about do not drift away and if you've spent any time in the water, you know how easy it is to drift away. You're just swimming, playing. You think you're swimming in a straight line or something in a lake or an ocean, and all of a sudden you are 50 meters away from where your stuff is. It is so easy to drift. That word forerunner was used for the small vessels that would take the anchor from the large ship before it could enter the harbor if it was low tide because it couldn't go into the harbor that it would have been too dangerous, it would have run up against rocks and sand and all these things. Before the large ship could enter the harbor, this small vessel would take the ship's anchor and, pl and, and place it on shore in the harbor so that the ship can know that it's arrived and then it just has to wait for high tide when it's safe to go all the way in. Do you see that amazing analogy that he has just given us to what Jesus has done? Jesus, this is why the historical facts, the historical actions of Jesus make all the difference. Jesus has taken us, the anchor of our soul, our identity, our inner being. He has taken us, even though we're still at sea, even though we're still in the wilderness, he has taken the deepest most important part of us into heaven. He is gone as a forerunner on our behalf so that we may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. What would that mean if we really trusted that? If we really hoped in that? And so this is part of that warning, so do not drift do not become sluggish because you have an anchor. And once the anchor's been placed, you're filled with rest. You can get down to the business of what you may be doing. Maybe it's fishing. Maybe it's relaxing on the boat. You don't have to worry about drifting anymore once your anchor has been laid. What would it mean for you? to fight against all the ways that we are tempted to live hopelessly, to live restlessly in the now, what would it mean for you to live in hope, 
to live knowing that Jesus is in the heavenly realm. And that we are so connected to Jesus that we can be told that God's purpose is unchangeable. It's unwavering. It's as good as done. It's legally guaranteed. It's stamped. I don't know what that would mean for me. I think it would change a lot of my anxieties. I think it would change a lot of my restlessness. But to think back again again to hope, hope, I said, is something about the future, right? Something about the future based on something that's been done in the past, and it changes what we do now. And faith and hope are so aligned that in uh, the famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, after he goes to these great lengths to describe the greatest thing, which is love, he ends by saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Why is the greatest love? Have you ever thought about that? Well, we're not going to need faith and hope in heaven. We're not going to, faith and hope are preliminary. Just like this meal. This meal is preliminary. It's getting us through now the wilderness. It's getting us through now the sea. We are still at sea. Not yet at harbor. The greatest of these is love because in God's immediate presence, it's just going to be as Jonathan Edwards called heaven, a world of love. That's what should change about us. We are so securely placed into a world of love that what it means, having been remade, is love God, love your neighbor. So what is it that we fear? Why is it so hard to live this way with the steadfast anchor of our soul? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are restless. We bow down and relinquish the battles against our, the world, the flesh, and the devil so often, and yet we read this amazing passage. Give us hope, give us thankfulness, give us that transcendent peace and rest because we know our anchor has been laid in Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.